Hi, welcome to the Jansen Report. Today is March 20th, 2014, and I'm very excited today to have James Corbett on the program. And I've been following James uh, for a couple of years now in doing my own research on the global economy and all the events that are happening in this uh, in this world today. And uh, like I said, I'm very excited to have James on. And um, uh, James, I guess you've been doing the Corbett Report since 2007, right? That is correct. Uh, the first podcast episode dropped, I believe it was June 1st, 2007. So going on almost seven years now. And what an incredible seven years it's been. Uh, yes, amazing. Uh, from what I've uh, seen in terms of content over the past couple of years, I think you've done an amazing job. Uh, also, very, uh, you've been uh, covering a lot of topics there, very, uh, in a you know, very broad array of uh, topics. How did you get to uh, to all these topics? Why why not just economics or uh, you know the banking system? Why this broad? I don't think there was a big theory behind this really on my part. It was really just a, a reflection. The, the website is really just a reflection of my own interests and the way that I I put things together in my own mind. And I didn't want to limit myself to any one particular box or one way of, of looking at this information because I think, although I do cover quite a lot from history to philosophy to economics to uh, all sorts of science in, in different areas, I think they do all relate in the end. And I think that there is an overarching narrative that I'm telling here. And I just don't think there's a uh, one way of telling that story. And I wouldn't want to confine myself to that. So it's really just a reflection of my own natural curiosity on a number of different uh, subjects. And the way that I came to this information was not through any one particular field of study. So uh, so I, I like to think of myself as a, a jack of all trades and master of none, I suppose. But that's why I have uh, guests and others on to help uh, inform me in, in the areas that I'm not. Uh, an expert in exactly that's what I found very inspiring it's very broad but you can see uh, what you said like a, uh, a certain uh, you know uh, uh, red line running through everything and, and what you say and what you do and uh, the interviews that you do are uh, very interesting because you get a lot of people on your program and uh, I think you manage very well in uh, in uh, getting a lot of interesting information that people can work with and uh, that's uh, that's what I find very exciting, and that's why I really wanted to have you on my show as uh, the first uh, person to interview. So welcome to the Jansen Report, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing this more often. Uh, but first, uh, you've been operating from Japan, uh, or you've been living in Japan since 2004. Um, I, I've always been curious as to why that is. There's, again, not uh, really any particular reason behind it. Uh, I was, uh, at the time in 2003, I was studying in Dublin, Ireland. I was studying a master's degree in Anglo-Irish literature, of all things. And as I was coming towards the end of that degree and uh, coming up against the uh, prospect of having to pay back the student loans that I'd accrued over the previous year, which I was not looking forward to, I realized that I had to come to a decision pretty quickly about what to do with my life. And as a way of postponing that decision, I thought, well, why don't I go teach English in Asia? Uh, that way I can earn some money, pay off my student loans, see a bit of the world, you know, two birds with one stone, and hey, uh, you know, postpone thinking about the big thing, what am I going to do with my life for, for a year? And so I came out here um, uh, through a company here in Japan, a private school that, uh, that offered uh, uh, basically help 
getting you relocated to Japan and, and teaching. So I, I came here as a teacher in 2004. Originally, I was going to stay one year and go back to Canada. After one year, I found that I liked it too much. So I decided to stay another year and then another year and another year and another year. And it's been 10 years now. This is my 10th year here in Japan. So it was really no master plan on my part. It was really just that I found, I think, the place that I wanted to be. And it was a comfortable lifestyle for me. And it was a few years into uh, uh, my, my stay here that I first encountered the information that eventually became the Corbett Report. So everything just kind of came into place naturally and organically and uh, has worked out uh, fairly well for me now that I have my Japanese wife and my little uh, half-Japanese boy. <laughs> what, he was uh, 10, 11 months old? That's right, yeah, he's just about to turn 11 months. 11 months, yeah. Wow, exciting, very exciting to have uh, these young children. I have two children of myself. They're uh, almost five and seven years old now, so it's really uh, that really gives a lot of joy in life. So uh, fabulous that is. Um, yes, well, I would like to move on to a certain topic, which deals with uh, you know information and, and doing research. And the you know the question I get from a lot of people is really how do you do your research and how do you d determine really what is uh, true and what is not true. And uh, because a lot of people online, of course, are blogging, are uh, spreading their opinions, and many people really don't do in-depth research or, you know, quantitative or qualitative research as such, but they just convey their opinions. How do you deal with that? Where do you get your information? It's a good question. I guess there are two different parts to that question. The first is, how do you do the research? And the second is, how do you then discern whether or not what you're seeing is, is true or verifiable? And I guess on the first part. Um, uh, my research is done fairly organically again. Um, I tend to, I, I, for example, there are, there are certain news sites that I'll go to on a daily basis to keep up with what's happening in various different uh, fields, ec economics, geopolitics, things like that. And uh, every time I see an interesting story or story that I think is valuable, I'll actually physically save that to my hard drive so that I have a copy of that. And over the process, over the course of the last seven years, just doing that process on a daily basis, I've accrued quite a big archive of news stories and uh, so I can just go into my own hard drive and if I have a, a certain topic or a certain thing that I want to research and just type in the keywords and see what, what I have in the archive. So that, that can be a good way of doing it just on a daily basis, just a little bit at a time. Um, when I'm looking for a specific uh, subject, then, I'll, then it might involve some deep research and that can take different forms depending on what it is. And uh, a lot of that might, might be done, for example, um, it might be done through documentaries that can be found online in various video sharing sites, or it might be from um, books um, that are either available at sites like archive.org or physical books, or um, it could be uh, any of a number of different sources, interviews, podcasts, uh, anything um, that is. And, and as I say, it's generally done a little bit at a time um, here and there over the course of many days or weeks or months or years, and that information just tends to accrue until I have enough information to put together a report. Um, as to discerning the truth or, or what, what is true or what is verifiable, I generally, I try to go back to source documentation as much as possible. If I'm reading something that doesn't have any links to any documents or doesn't have any proof for what they're saying, doesn't have any footnotes, doesn't, doesn't lead to anywhere else, it's probably just someone's opinion. And I take it as such until I have actual, you know, credible evidence otherwise. So I'm always looking for source documentation or something that will go back as closely to the source as possible. 
And that's the wonderful thing about being in this internet age is that now, probably for the first time, realistically, the average person does have access to the source documentation on just about anything that's happening in the world right now. Um, so much of our lives are digitized, which there's definitely downsides to that. But one of the upsides is that we do have access to so much information so readily available at our fingertips. Right. I, I, I totally agree. But what I also see is a lot of skepticism when it comes to uh, this online research and people saying, well, you, you get information from a source, from a source, which is also from a source and another source. So uh, how do you how do you really come to that uh, truth? And it could be just uh, bias upon bias upon bias. So that that's really something that we have to deal with, I guess. And uh, I'm really curious as uh, you know what your feelings are towards this uh, towards this question. I think that's very true. I mean, there is the echo chamber effect, and that can that takes place. I think everyone falls prey to that to a certain extent. I mean, we tend to check news sources and sites that tend to confirm our overall worldview, certainly more often than we tech check sites that don't. I mean, we just tend to fall into that trap, and uh, I'm as guilty of that as anyone, I think. I think we all tend to do that, which is why it's always important to make the conscious effort to uh, to look for sources that, that try to disprove what we already believe. And so when I'm researching uh, a topic, for example, 9-11 or something of that sort, I will generally go out of my way when searching a specific topic to look for the other side of that argument. And there are all sorts of websites on the net that are supposedly debunking 9-11 truth, which is one uh, topic that I talk about quite a bit on my podcast. I will often search out the, the strongest arguments against what I'm saying so that I'm not, uh, so that I'm aware of what those arguments are, that I'm not, I realize that I'm not trying to overstep the information I have. And and, uh, and it's always that constant process of questioning yourself, questioning what it is you know, how you know it. Um, have you tried testing this against anything else, or are you just trying to confirm it, um, confirm your already existing hypothesis? And again, I think this this is something that everyone has to do on a continual basis, whether you're doing internet research or any type of research. Um, I think we're all going to fall into that trap to a certain extent. It's just that the echo chamber is that much more apparent, I think, online, when you really can spend your whole time, if, for example, you're a, a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist, you can spend your whole life on those conspiracy theory websites that confirm what you already believe and uh, fall into that trap um, just as easily as someone who's a, uh, a conspiracy debunker can have the exact opposite experience um, with the echo chamber in the conspiracy debunking sphere. So I think it's just a question of, of making that conscious decision to constantly be checking uh, our own biases against what, what else is out there and what can possibly uh, test them. And that's not only for the sake of um, uh, of, uh, I guess, questioning our biases, but also for the sake of, well, if we are really right about what we're saying, it's it's incumbent on us to have the strongest possible argument, not to be relying on the weakest argument that can be easily knocked down. Because, uh, for example, for myself, putting out information as a media producer, I don't want to put out content that's easily knocked down or is quickly proven false because then obviously I don't have a reputation. So my reputation rests on the fact that I try to put forward the strongest possible argument that I have. And the only way to do that is by, for example, going to those sites that question the types of things that I'm putting forward. Exactly. So you continuously challenge your own views then, or the, the, the points that you want to make. That's the ideal at any rate. Yes. And I think we should all try to do that self-consciously. I, exactly. And I guess one thing that you do is uh, you also talk to uh, other experts. So it's not just you uh, researching the information, but you also talk to people that come from a certain background and that really know a lot about that background. 
I, uh, I recently watched an interview with you and uh, Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, of course, someone who's really in a know when it comes to politics and, uh, you know, having been with the, uh, the Treasury and all. So I guess these people can provide uh, a different uh, insight into certain information, into a certain topic, right? Absolutely. Is that what you continuously yeah. search for? Sorry, one more time. Is that something that you continuously look for uh, that you seek? Absolutely, yes. Well, I, uh, of course, as a media producer, I'm also a consumer of a lot of independent alternative media. So I subscribe to all sorts of podcasts. I, I watch many different YouTube channels. I've I've got my feelers out there for a lot of uh, of content because I'm always interested in the, in these subjects. And when when I note a particularly interesting speaker or or an interview guest or or when I read an interesting book, I mean, it's just natural for me at this point to think, well, I should get that person on my program to talk about that in more depth. Because before I started the Corbett Report, I would listen to, or I'd watch an interview or listen to an interview or read a book. And simply, I would, I would kind of internalize that. But, um, but at this point, I kind of think of it in a different way that now that I'm a media producer, well, I, I, I can actually question this person. What would I ask this person if I could ask them? And I, so perhaps I approach it in a different perspective like that. And uh, through that method, I try to come up with just the most interesting people that I can find, the most knowledgeable people on any given subject and, and put my own questions to them. And that's kind of the amazing thing, again, about this internet age we're living in, where through the marvel of technology that costs very little for the average working person in the industrialized world. We are having conversation, uh, real-time conversation face-to-face -face through the internet from uh, opposite sides of the planet. I mean, this is um, science fiction type stuff just a half a century ago That's it's right here at our fingertips. So I'm trying to make the most of it, and so I certainly do try to source out the most reliable and interesting speakers that I can find. Yes, you succeed very well, uh, James. Um, <clears throat> How do you, uh, so when we talk about these interviewees, how do you select them? Uh, do you try to, uh, to look at various opinions, different uh, angles here? So uh, when you talk to Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, do you also try to interview someone who's, who looks at, uh, at this uh, topic in a different way? Not necessarily. Um, I think it depends on the topic that I'm looking at. I will certainly talk to people who have different opinions on, on a matter, but it's not it's not that I'm necessarily trying to do the old um, journalistic objectivity thing. Well, we have to talk to people from both sides of this argument. I'm not trying to do that. Um, I've I've talked about that on my podcast several times about uh, journalistic objectivity, which I don't really believe in. I think that's a, a paradigm that we can safely jettison in, in the dustbin of history because it um, basically assumes that there is some sort of journalistic cloud that we can sit on and look at some issue from, from top down. I, I certainly don't. I certainly do come at these things with my my own opinion and perspective, and I do not try to hide that, as opposed to a lot of, I think, uh, old-time uh, journalists who do try to pretend that they, oh, they can stand above the fray and they don't have to have a political dog in the fight. They all do, of course, and, and that influences everything that they do, including what guests they'll talk to, what topics they'll talk about, and what topics they won't talk about, and all of these things are influenced by this. So I'm not necessarily trying to, if I cover a subject, that I will talk to this person on this side of the issue and this person on that side, but I will try to talk to the people that I think are um, 
fr framing the narrative in a way that's that's most useful or interesting or informative, and uh, and that can be different. That that can take different forms in different subjects. Um, it could take the form, for example, on the monetary reform issue. I've talked to people on all sides of that issue. Whether you're talking to uh, people who are into cryptocurrencies or people who are into gold and silver, people who are into uh, government fiat, um, all sorts of different people on that on that issue. Because I myself, I don't see any one particular straight path. I'm not uh, adherent to it. So I'll, I'll, I'm happy to talk to other people and to try to add those ideas to the mix and, uh, and, and let the, the viewer and the listener decide about it as they will. Um, so there are certain issues that I'll do that. And then other issues where I'll tend to talk to people on, from, from a specific angle um, on 9-11 Truth. I tend to talk to people in the 9-11 Truth community who I think are doing interesting research in 9-11. So, um, so again, it depends. It's different for different subjects, but that's generally my approach. What's really your end goal with the, the corporate report, if there is an end goal, but or maybe a purpose? Yes, end, end goal. I don't know about that, but uh, purpose. I would say, well, ultimately, I think I uh, the the genesis of the corporate report was came from my own my own natural curiosity, my own wanting to, to understand more about this process of what's happening in the world and hopefully to impart some of that knowledge to others. So I think first and foremost, it's really a process of self-education. And I hope that as people in the audience are witnessing that, that they can also gain from that experience along with me. And I'd like to think that my audience that's been with me for several years now has grown in 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 understanding of the system in the same way that I have, or at least all uh, has witnessed my own growth and, and thus have come to their own understanding. Um, I, so I don't want to make it into a, a grandiose thing where I think I'm going to change the world, but at any rate, I'm, I'm certainly putting myself out there as an example of the autodidactic process Process that I'm doing right now to try to come to a better understanding of the world. And I must say that in the seven years that I've been doing this, I think I've learned a hundred times more than in the four or five years of post-secondary education that I subjected myself to, in which all I have to show for it is a couple of pieces of paper. Um, that unfortunately for a lot of people means a lot more to them than what I've accomplished with the Corbett Report. But it's ridiculous because I really have learned more about how the world works through the work that I'm doing online than I ever did in the classroom. I agree. Uh, the, the past three years have been eye-opening for me as well, ever since I decided to do my own research and uh, to really try to understand what's going on in the world. Because uh, as an entrepreneur, I experienced a lot of things that you know didn't work out for me in, in the economy. And I decided, well, that there's, there's something wrong. Um, it's not just a crisis that we're going through. There's a lot more at stake here. And, and that's why I decided to do my own research. And, um, you know, it's really uh, eye-opening. If people, if more people were to do this, I guess uh, the truth, the big truth, would come out and a lot more people would be uh, able to prepare for, uh, well, the bigger events that, uh, that are probably coming as well. Um, we've been talking about, uh, you know, the Corvette Report and the purpose here. And uh, when we talk about a big picture, like understanding the world, uh, is there something you can say about that? Is there a big picture are all these uh, things that are happening worldwide within countries like Syria and uh, Venezuela, but Ukraine, um, you know, the powers that be, Russia uh, and versus the West, are these just incidents or is it just a power game or is there more happening there? What's your take on that? It's a very important question, and I guess it depends how far out you want to pull out to look at the big picture. So, for example, when you're talking about the geopolitical situation with, with the destabilization in Ukraine right now, or what's happening in Venezuela, or even, for example, some of the recent terror attacks in China, 
we could look at all of these incidents and sort of look at and see if there's relations internally in those events and and then between the events themselves is there a bigger geopolitical uh, system that's at, at play here what is that what are the outlines of that and i think that's useful and that's something that i do on a regular basis on the corbett report we're looking for example at the growing nato empire expansion encirclement of china and russia and how that plays into a geo strategic um, goal at the moment that it really seems to be cutting off um, China and Russia as part of an encirclement that's leading towards a World War III type scenario. Again, all very interesting, but I guess the question is, is there a layer on top of that? Can we even pull further out for a bigger, bigger picture? And I think, again, I think the answer is yes. And um, I... I locate that in a number of different places, but again, I try to look back towards source documentation and what we can actually look at in terms of what the people who presumably are on the inside of this uh, this grand plan are actually saying themselves. And we can look, for example, at certain um, people that I don't think are necessarily the top layer of management of this global system, but certainly people who are um, very high up in that system, like as Big New Brzezinski, who, for example, has written works like Between Two Ages, which is an extremely important work that I hope some of the viewers of this report will uh, will check into, in which he was writing about the, the technotronic era that we're living in right now, but he was writing about it in the 1970s and talking about the era basically of the internet before the internet was really a thing and uh, and how that would affect society and how society would be reduced to, to being basically reliant on uh, authorities, official authorities, to tell them everything, including how to dress for the weather and, and all of this, because uh, they want to basically reduce us into completely subservient creatures. And uh, and that's just one example of that. You can look um, back at the writings of someone like uh, Charles Darwin Galton, who was writing um, nearly 100 years ago now about the, the next million years in which there is a plan by the same eugenics uh, families, including the Darwins and the Galtons and the Huxleys and all of these interbred families that came out of the 19th century that came up with the idea of eugenics, i.e. there are certain people just by their genetics are actually um, worthy of ruling over the rest of humanity. And lo and behold, it turns out to be the very same people that came up with the theory. I wonder how that works. But uh, but then you have people like Charles Darwin Galton, who's writing about the next million years and saying, well, human evolution would take a million years to reach a new species, but we can do it in a lot less than that if we start tinkering with uh, people's biology. And maybe we should start tinkering so we can reduce the, uh, the, the fertility rates and we can start tinkering to reduce testosterone levels in males so that they won't be able to pose much of a threat to our system. And, and all of these things, which surprisingly enough, if you look into it, are actually coming true right now. Fertility rates plummeting, um, testosterone levels uh, plummeting, um, all sorts of bio uh, endocrine-disrupting chemicals are being inserted into our water supplies, ending up in our water supplies somehow or other and changing us on a biological level. Um, you can look at people like Carol Quigley, who was a professor at Georgetown University and was name-checked by Bill Clinton when he actually became the presidential nominee for the Democratic Party back in 1992 as his mentor, who was writing in the 1960s uh, books like The Tra Tragedy and Hope and the Anglo-American Establishment, writing about a, a roundtable group that was created by Cecil Rhodes um, uh, in the last decade, or in early decade, uh, early first decade of the 20th century, last
last decade of the 19th century, this roundtable group that was formed that is part of a an interlocking system of groups in the United States, in Great Britain, in other countries around the world that originally was aiming at the spreading of the British Empire and British culture as a type of dominant world system, but has morphed into um, basically more of a, I suppose, an Anglo-American empire, which it's a, a, is attempting to be created um, through organizations like the Royal Institute on Inter in of International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations and their associated bodies around the world. And he wrote extensively about this network and how it works. He had access to their primary documents in their in their in their um, private archives, which no one else has had access to. Um, he he talked and wrote openly about this conspiracy and identified it as a conspiracy. And uh, he he talked openly and glowingly about it and said it was a good thing. The only thing he disagreed was the fact that they were trying to keep it secret. Um, he thought it should be made public. So he tr he published uh, Tragedy and Hope, where we can read about this. And he he talks about the powers of finance capital having a far-reaching aim to create an interlocking structure of control through that is coordinated through the uh, the central bank of central banks, the Bank for International Settlements in Basel, Switzerland, and how this system would be controlled um, from the top, etc., etc. Lays it all out in Tragedy and Hope. And uh, lo and behold, the original plates of the, the printing of uh, Tragedy and Hope were destroyed um, against his wishes and, and without Carol Quigley even knowing about it before he had a chance to, to buy them. So that even uh, today, any um, printing that's made of that book today is not the original printing. So um, I, some of it may have been lost somewhere in the line unless you have an original edition of this book, which spilled too many secrets. Again, there are many, many, many different places we can go for different parts of this story, but I think it does create a bigger picture of a global ruling elite that rule through the financial control that comes through monetary authorities, central banks, and the like, um, and are obviously aiming towards a certain social political system that will be, um, uh, I suppose, advantageous for themselves and their own progeny, and disadvantageous for the rest of us, um, who they basically look at as cattle to be used and abused in the system. Yeah, the, the, the question that I've been playing with is why? I mean, uh, we talk about uh, globalists or neoconservatives, uh, the the big banker, the big banksters or bankers, the banking elite. Uh, there are different terms for certain groups that are, you know, supposed to be the elite who want to rule the world. But why? Why would they want to do something like that? And why does it, um, you know, span multiple generations already? There's there there has to be some kind of very deep rooted belief. What do you think? I think you're exactly right. I think it is a deep-rooted belief, and um, and that is the I think the part of this puzzle that that is the most puzzling from our perspective as just regular people working our everyday lives and not even being able to conceive of having a multi-generational plan, let alone seeing it come to fruition. How on earth would I even get my son to to uh, to do a particular to become a particular job or something? I can't even think that far ahead, let alone to uh, continue on with some grand plan. And I think we do. I, there are people. Who, who see it in a spiritual framework or something of that sort, I think at any rate, I think they, the, the people who are part of this plan do see it in those in, in, in almost a, a religious sense. And it's not necessarily religious uh, in, a, in, in the sense of religion, but in the sense of uh, maybe a replacement for religion. So that, for example, I look at the eugenics philosophy, the idea that, again, some people are genetically superior and thus should be rulers of the world. I look at that as kind of a replacement for the 
old um, narratives that that religion used to take um, in society in the pre-scientific age, where there was the uh, the divine right of kings or the idea that the emperors were gods themselves on the planet. Um, obviously, we don't ad adhere to that anymore. We don't tend to think of uh, the kings and queens as anything other than figureheads at this point. So what came along to take the place of that? It was this scientific theory. Of course, it's not really very, it's quackery, basically, but it's a scientific coding on this idea that, oh, there's a, there's a real, real reason, a, a biological reason why these people should be rulers. And I think they, they truly believe it. I think they, that's something that uh, they're brought up with and something that they truly believe at the, at the core of their being, that they really do deserve to rule over, over everyone. And something else that really helped my understanding on this was a book called uh, Political Ponerology by... I want to say Andrew Lobachevsky. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but basically a, a researcher who talked about the, the uh, psychopathy and how that contributes to this. And I think that's something that has to be taken into account. The fact that there is a, a, a percentage of the population, numbers vary, but usually something around three or 4% is, is estimated that literally are almost like, you could almost say a different species insofar as they do not have regular human emotions or the ability to process them. This is is the clinical uh, state of psychopathy, which again is it's not out there. It's something that we know about, and we can even do CAT scans, etc., to to see people's uh, uh, reactions and see that their brain operates differently and they process the world differently. One of the the many different uh, character traits of people who are psychopathic is that they truly do believe themselves to be infallible, and thus tend to think of themselves as natural rulers of the earth. And I think that's really what we're looking at is some very high functioning so psychopaths who have found their ways into um, literally the highest seats of power imaginable, including control over the financial system itself. And uh, and we've seen this at a micro level, I think, in terms of the corporate structures and how psychopaths tend to ri rise to dominance in those. I think we see that at the macro level in terms of central banks and people who literally control the money supply, um, who, again, are high-functioning psychopaths that really believe that they have the right to rule over the rest of us. Exactly. I, uh, I totally agree. It, it becomes very evident when you do a little bit of research. Uh, I mean, the, the red line is visible. And um, that's what I like to tell a lot more people is to really wake up to this uh, harsh reality. And uh, I do find that um, many intelligent people uh, are really closed. They don't want to open up to this reality or they think uh, it's you know supposed to be regarded as just a conspiracy uh, way of thinking. And um, that's why I think it's so important that a lot more people wake up. And uh, I think you're doing a great job with that. And I, I want, to, want to ask you uh, one more final question is, what do you, what do you see happening in the, in the short term? What big events can we still expect? Well, yeah, well, obviously, I'm a bit biased being here in the Asia-Pacific region, but I really do think that Asia-Pacific is going to be an increasingly important part of the globe, um, geopolitically speaking. Uh, we've seen in the last few years, for example, the Pentagon um, uh, quite openly talking about the Asia-Pacific pivot, that they are now starting to move more of their assets and attention towards the Asia-Pacific region, obviously as a type of counterbalance to growing Chinese uh, influence in the region. And I think we're starting to see the beginnings of that tension and rivalry with Japan and the Philippines and other American rivals starting to play off against the growing might of the Chinese Navy and uh, Chinese militarism generally. So we are starting to see the, the outline of what that kind of 
if not outright conflict, at least Cold War type scenario would be. And I really do think that there's going to be some interesting incidents along that line along the way, including such things as that recent terror attack we saw in Kunming province in, uh, in China where we had 33 people stabbed to death at a train station. Um, a very interesting incident that is potentially a harbinger of more things to come in terms of uh, China de dealing with its own Al-Qaeda, if you will, the East Turkestan Islamic uh, Party and their, their movement. Um, so some very interesting things that are happening here in this part of the globe that I think people should be keeping their eye on and uh, and. Uh, if for no other reason than economically speaking, obviously we are we have moved into a world where China has become a linchpin of the global economy and it is slowing down and there are signs of some very serious and worrying things coming out of the Chinese economy. So we have to be keeping our eye on it for that reason alone, if nothing else. Of course, uh, China has been uh, building up this giant uh, debt bubble, but uh, they've also been hoarding gold. So and they continue to do that. So that's very interesting, very interesting uh, development that we're going to see uh, unfold in uh, the next few years, I guess. But, um, you know, uh, what would you recommend the viewers uh, when it comes to uh, these events? Can they prepare? And if so, how? Obviously, there there are ways to prepare, um, and I think that the most important thing that we can do is to combat the mindset that there is no hope, that there is nothing that we can do. I try to stress as much as possible in the work that I do that it really does come down to individuals um, being able to, to basically uh, take things into their own hands to the extent that they can, so that, for example, there isn't a lot that you and I or anyone who's watching this can realistically do to stop the NSA from spying on them through their electronic gadgets, for example. But, for example, we can make the decision to stop using our electronic gadgets so much. That is something that is in our power and our control, and we can decide to leave the cell phone at home if we go out. That's a very, very small example, but that is an important example of how there always are choices that we can make. Um, and, and every single day, every time we wake up, um, from the moment we wake up until the moment we go to sleep, we are making choices on what to choose, on what to spend our time on, what to spend our energy on, what to spend our money on, and what to do with our lives. And every single one of those choices is one that we can make in the knowledge that uh, this is uh, bolstering this system that is trying to work against us, or it is trying to counteract that. So I'm always uh, uh, encouraging people to look into complementary currencies, into cryptocurrencies, into um, uh, gold and silver, into anything that can get around the system that, uh, that has been slotted into place around us. And there are lots of different ways to do this economically, um, socially, uh, politically. And, uh, and again, I think it's incumbent on each of us to do what we can. And it may seem like baby steps at first. You're probably not going to revolutionize the world by, for example, choosing to leave the cell phone at home when you go out for the day. But at any rate, you are starting to revolutionize your life. And uh, those, those ripple effects, I really do think, will start to add up eventually if enough of us really do take that message to heart. Exactly. Well, I, I do see a lot of movement uh, within the population, at least here in the Netherlands and in Europe, larger parts of Europe, where people are taking the initiative to start a local currency, uh, for instance, and uh, for, for various reasons. But people do recognize that there's something wrong here and uh, do start to wonder why we just don't seem to get out of the recession. Um, so um, I'm very hopeful for the, for the near future that more people will uh, wake up to the reality and will actually take action to educate themselves on this uh, on this topic and to uh, take action to uh, improve their future. So uh, I'm hoping to see more of that. 
As am well, I. And and people who are interested in this um, can go to my website, corporatereport.com. If you just type the word solutions into the search bar at the top right side, I have a number of podcasts on all sorts of different things that I've uh, looked at in the past. Everything from the 3D printing revolution to complementary currencies to um, making your own media, all, all sorts of different ways that people can kind of grow, not, not overthrow the government or overthrow the system, but basically outgrow, grow around the system, grow something alternative to the system so that we have something in place for if and when the hammer drops and and the system falls apart. And hey, maybe it won't. Maybe that will never happen. But if and when it ever does, at least we'll have some alternatives in place that we can turn to rather than be scrambling around like chickens with our heads cut off, ready for whatever solutions the powers that shouldn't be proposed for us. Exactly. Well, it was great having you on, uh, James. Thank you very much for your time. And um, I would like to have you on uh, in the future as well. And I'm um, looking to, uh, to do more interviews and hope to have you on the program uh, multiple times in the future. Uh, so uh, thank you very much again and uh, good luck with uh, the corporate report. And I'll, uh, I'll be watching. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye.